One of the things that I really appreciated about my deepest teachers uh, was that they would carry a fan. And uh, in the old days in Burma, uh, when a Sayadaw gave a talk, he would do the talk behind a fan so that there'd be no grasping on to a being, a personality, and it would really help you stay within yourself, you know, because they would really stay contained within themselves. And that, that when you bow, that you're not bowing to any personality, but you're bowing to the wisdom and the compassion or the renunciation. And getting a a taste for that um, kind of peace and quiet and, and not losing yourself inside or outside. No get not getting um, not stopping outside, not stopping inside. Um it takes time. When I did my first retreat, um, it was in 1975 up in northern Maine. It was the first uh, three-month retreat in America. And most of the people at this uh, three-month retreat were um, kind of old, already old students that had been in India for a while. Uh, and they let a few of us uh, into the last two weeks of this three-month retreat. And I didn't know anything about what I was getting myself into, like zero. And I had just quit a job. I caught a Bob Dylan concert in Bangor, Maine on the way Mm -hmm. down. I would never have gone to this retreat if it hadn't been really close to my home. And um, because I lived so close, I got there early. And there was no staff to meet you. or There were just 
people who'd been practicing for two and a half months very seriously. So I opened the door to this place, and people were coming out of the Dhamma Hall just really slow, you know, and not looking around. And there was no, like, what to do if you were new. And um, I just came outside, and I, I burst out laughing. I just was like, ha, <laughs> Uh, and then I didn't know what to do. So I went back in, and everyone was walking slow, not looking up at me, and I went outside, and I just laughed, and I laughed again. And, I, you know, I didn't quite know what to do, so I waited till people sort of went off walk to their walking. I didn't even know what they were doing. And I went in again, and there was a little piece of paper that had the schedule on it as you went into the Dhamma Hall, and it had the schedule, you know. Sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, you know, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, sit, walk, you know, and then it had Dhamma talk, walk, sit, optional practice, um, and I thought, I really thought that meant we could talk every night at 7.30, you know, I really, I had no idea that somebody would be up front speaking, so the only reason I stayed is I said to myself, oh, good, I can talk every night for an hour, <laughs> you know, great. <laughs> And when I found out that, you know, the Saturday night that we weren't going to be talking, I was just like, whoa, what is this? You know, just um, such a shock. Such a shock. And then I had this wonderful good fortune of um, being at this meditation center where a lot of really accomplished beings you know, came through. Um, and one of them was Mahasi Seda, who uh, was known to be fully enlightened, and he was a great uh, scholar as well as a practitioner. And in, in many ways, us lay people get to practice all over the world because... Um, there was a certain point in time in Burma where he opened this up to lay people, and it had never been offered in that way to lay people. It was for mon- mostly for monks and nuns. So he's very revered in Burma because of this. And um, like, if somebody in Burma knows that I cooked for Mahasi Sayada, they will just—they will really think I'm the most fortunate person in the world. And when I first practice with Sayada Upandita, um, he was looking at my, um, you know, the history of what I wrote down, and uh, he saw that I had cooked for Mahasi Sayada, and he put on his glasses, and he just stared at me, and he's like, I can't believe what good karma you have, you know? And it's just like I had no idea, but it's just that the the level of... um, respect that people have in Burma for people who practice. You know, it's just like you would be met when you come out of retreat here with like, it's more like you're met with roses and a red carpet rather than, it's better nowadays, you know, it's it's more understood as, well, it depends on where you go, you know, but it, it's still for most people that they, they you know, you tell your family or at work that you're going off for 10 days of silence. It's pretty odd and threatening. <laughs> you know, so Mahasi Sayadaw was 
fully enlightened means that there's, you know, there's just no more karma being made. It's not only that there's, you know, a lot, there's just kind of a perfection of wholesome karma, that there's just, it's like the bird that leaves no trace. And the Buddha called this, done is what had to be done. And I remember the first time I heard Mahasi speak, he um, described full enlightenment as no more desire for existence and no more desire for non-existence. And and it was so moving to me. It was just like, you know our ambivalence. (laughs) We have this incredible ambivalence about being here. You know, we we want to be here, we want things, and then we don't, you know, it doesn't meet up to our expectation and what we want, and we don't want to be here. Um, so to, to have um, completed that understanding and to be able to live it out is very powerful. So for me, when I was kind of um, drafted to cook for Mahasi, uh, it was at a time at this place where we were used to cooking for maybe 60 people and 140 people were there. We didn't get any extra help. And uh, I think five or six monks came with Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh, and um, if you were to help cook for Mahasi, you had to get up at like one in the morning. And there were no rooms left at IMS. And I said, oh, I'll get... it was just easy for me. I'll sleep in a tent. Yeah, I'll get up. But I didn't know that there was a dress code. So I wore a dress that was totally sleeveless, was sort of partly free, very short. And I would I would run from my tent, you know, run down into this place where they were staying, and I'd open the door, and it would be like I was shot with an elephant tranquilizer. You know, I was just like so hopped up, and I'd walk into this place, and it was so calm. It was just so quiet. It was amazing, just the vibe. Um, and one time I was cooking something and I burned my finger really badly and the the person who was helping also, you know, that came from Burma to help cook for Mahasi um, I was just like his assistant so one day I burned my my finger very badly and he came over and I was like about to go (laughs) and he just came up to me and he said burning burning burning. And he just said, make, make a soft mental note. I'm like, burning, <laughs> burning, burning. And it, it's not like he couldn't speak English very much, but it was just that, again, the kinesthetic feeling of that that was totally okay, that I could be with the burning, that it was going to come and go by itself, just that ease of well-being. That was how it was to be there for those hours in the early morning before I had to go cook for the yogis for the day. And it had a huge impact, that taste for a very different kind of quiet. And the Buddha taught that the taste for liberation, um, it's like you develop the taste for it. Sometimes I think that we, it takes so much, um, 
It takes so many days to be able to settle in out of our busy lives and to really appreciate quiet and to like be able to receive the silence and understand uh, the blessing of it. Several years ago when I was teaching in Burma with Sayadaw Ulakana, um, he was very sick. And out of the blue, the last day of the retreat, his teacher just showed up. Um, he didn't, you know, it wasn't like anybody called him, but he showed up. And um, he was, he is known to be full enlightened. You know, this is a very rare. <laughs> I haven't, can't count them on my fingers. They're so rare. So it's just like, um, it was the last day, and we were just about to break silence. Sayadaw was giving his last talk. Um, and it, it was very interesting. At the end of Sayadaw's block on this talk, who was sick, he he um, had us all go up to the dining room, have our our dinner, the first meal afternoon that we had eaten for the three weeks. And uh, later somebody came up to me and said, uh, my teacher, you know, his teacher was willing to meet with us. Um, so they had just broken silence after three weeks. And it was so interesting. It was so loud when people break silence. Uh, and I had to say, uh, <laughs> you uh, we can meet with Seda's teacher if you want. And so we went up there and no one could stop talking. You know, once you start, start it's really hard to stop. And, and so we got up in this teeny little room and everybody was talking loud and we were waiting and waiting. And I thought, hmm... I wonder why he's not coming. And then it was like, oh yeah, it's too noisy. So I just said, hey, everyone, I think if we just are quiet, he might come. And so everybody, there was this like kind of gradual getting quiet. And the minute, the second, the last sound happened, he had just been behind this curtain, waiting. He wouldn't even come in. It's just like, quiet. <laughs> but just, they don't, they don't chatter. They don't do this idle chatter. It's not what they do at that point in their lives. Um, quiet. Sometimes when I sit down to, to um, have a formal sitting, I just sometimes remind myself to just, it's like, like I say the word hush. But I don't mean shut up, you know. It's like, shh, just shh. And I really think it's like that feeling of like if you're holding a baby bird and you see its heart throbbing, it's like that's how quiet we need to be to really be in the present moment. It's, it's that delicate. It's moving so quickly. The great Zen master Dogen, who lived uh, from 1200 to 1253, cast away all speech. Our words may express it, but cannot hold it. The way of letters leaves no trace, yet the teaching is revealed. There's something about rainbows, you know, that I think often really 
touch us because we see how um, ephemeral they are. You know, they're so beautiful. And we have this word, rainbow, just like we have the word rain. But the word rainbow could never, you know, touch like what the experience is of actually being with one. It's like this visitor that comes and goes, uh, just like the stars every night, or the metta, or anger. And it's, it's easy for us to be interested in a rainbow, but are we just as interested in anger or sadness? And that, that's, the, that's the teaching, or knee pain. <laughs> Not easy, right? It's like, and that, that impartiality is so um, essential over time as you start to see that this is not a state-oriented practice. So impartiality doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean that we're disconnected. We're connected, but we're learning how to connect with everything that happens as equally valuable. So brushing our hair or brushing our teeth or going to spoon soup into our bowl, all of it is considered worthy of our attention, worthy of the respect of life as it is. As we start giving more and more instruction on um, the sixth sense door, awareness with the Brahma Viharas, the the possibility of um, relating to ourselves and others with with these four immeasurables can be very interesting when you go through the six sense doors. You know, you'll start to see that over time, when you bring your attention to your eyes, that you can, you can really, at first, be mindful of the experience of the physical sensations there and seeing, not, not being caught up in what is seen, eyes open or closed, but seeing. And then you can, you can actually practice the four Brahma-viharas with that sense to kindness, caring about any pain, gratitude, appreciating, appreciating (laughs) the gift of seeing and that equanimity things are just as they are however however our eyes are you know, it's like this amazing process of then we do that with smelling and tasting and hearing and we can do that with our thinking not being caught up in the thinking but again, appreciating being kind toward the thoughts, caring about any painful thought, appreciating, being grateful for the gift of thinking and understanding that things are as they are, that we can't control them. And on and on, it's like emotions. Just, again, you take that bigger view that we have an emotional body, an emotional being, and that we can have this kindness toward the pleasant ones the joy, the enthusiasm. The, you, you, the Brahma-viharas are emotions, spiritual emotions. So we learn to be kind, not take them personally. But we, we can be kind toward them, care about them, 
appreciate them and have that, again, that deep things are as they are with them. There's an old text of the many of the teachings in the way of the elders, the Theravadan tradition, and one of the books is called The Path of Purification. And it's it's really about purifying our understanding of how things are. Like there's deeper and deeper insights of that's the purification. It's purification purifying how we're perceiving reality and what we understand in relationship to it. And on a retreat, we are... um, In the place in the retreat... (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) Where... um, I think it's a cough drop time. Thanks. Mm. Hmm. We can start to appreciate don't know mind. I uh, worked at a meditation center for a long time that had um, the word metta at the, the at the top of the front door that you walked into. And in my early years, one of these uh, yogis and I used to joke around that we wished it said "Don't know mind" <laughs> instead of "meta," because it's uh, "Don't know mind" means beginner's mind, and it means this ability to over and over again begin begin again and realize that we really, if you think you know what a rainbow is, you won't pay attention to it. If you have, like, if you have that, you know, thought and knowing, you know, oh, I know what a rainbow is. We'll just see the rainbow we saw the last time or the time before. We won't really experience it new and fresh. And um, what that means is we don't really have a genuine connection with that experience. It's something from the past. So don't know mind means that we're not trying to get rid of anything and we're not trying to get anything. And that's when the motivation is, it's like we're paying attention, we're connecting with the experience, but it's not going through the filter of aversion and attachment. And this is when there is peace. You know, we we talk about peace, we want peace, we want a non-violent world, but it always starts with ourselves. And, and when you start to see how actually violent you are with your thoughts or your emotions or your body, you start to get why the world is violent. And a peaceful moment is when 
we're not trying to get anything or get rid of anything, but we're actually genuinely connecting with how the moment actually is. And sometimes we call that pure exploration. So I'd like to give an example of this. Maybe, well, I'll give examples all through the rest of the talk. Um, It's very important at this point in the retreat to start to understand the conditions uh, for genuine interest to arise. Because it's only out of genuine interest that genuine connection actually happens. And it's it's whether we're with ourself, with ourself, or ourself with another, ourself with life. It's very interesting. It's it's the same process where um, if we have an agenda, if we have an agenda, just say you're with your friend. If you have an agenda or an expectation, there won't be a genuine connection because the agenda and the expectation kills connection. And it's the same with our experience of our breath, or or, uh, taking a step, or eating, or with with an emotion like fear, or an emotion like joy. With anything, uh, if we're trying to make something last longer than it is is going to happen, or you know that sometimes people are very afraid of the experience of joy because we're so afraid we're going to lose it. And, you know, we'll start grasping onto it because we want it to last and then we're not, we're not experiencing the joy. When I was um, sitting this last March, I had this experience of walking into the bathroom and, and just looking in the mirror. And the next mind moment after seeing was, I hate myself. It was just... It was spontaneous. It was effortless. It's the karmic knot. And I, I was in a space where I found it so amazing. You know, like, it wasn't like there was anything but seeing in the next moment that thought. And then I saw all the times in my life where I would try to talk myself out of that and really not connect with that part of myself. And in that moment, it was so, it was so that not trying to get rid of, not trying to get, just really getting I could be kind to that part of myself. Not to, not to have to get rid of that part of myself. And out of that connection, there was such a relief. It was like that part of myself was attended to. And I can give you so many examples of this because this is, this is it. This is, this is mindfulness and metta. Um, I think it's amazing to me that it took me so long to realize that there was a pretty substantial anxiety disorder running through my family. I mean, it's like the it's the elephant that nobody saw in the room. It, it's truly amazing. Like, if you ask anybody in my family if there was anxiety running things, they would look at you like, are you crazy? But it, it's so amazing. Um and so, like an example of, you know, say, say I'm late and get, my life is a lot of getting to airports and kind of being late, uh, and that worry that will start to come, that anxiety. And so uh, I used to have a friend that used to drive me to the airport in Honolulu, and he'd say, worrying 
with with it with with a version of course but to be like wearing isn't going to get us there any faster it'll be like oh. <laughs> okay i'm not going to tell you i'm worried right you know it's just like it but that, that's how we can talk i'll say to myself where it, it's that worry's not going to make it any better stop worrying right and just again there's just been a whole shift in my way of relating to things which is like oh i can just go in my body and just totally receive the worry like I would receive in kindness or happiness. And when I just drop in and just receive that, um, all those cells that are worrying, it's fine. Connected with, that part of me is connected with, feels attended to, no problem. But the, as you can see, this takes enough energy so what are the conditions for interest? Well, you start to see that, you know, if you're tired, you're usually going to fall back on conditioning. If you're tired and you look up the, at a rainbow, it's like, well, it's just a rainbow. It's another rainbow. You know, if it's, if it's, uh, <laughs> I already saw one. You know, it's just, uh, and if you, if you're really in beginner's mind, it's like, wow, it's, it's just, you just want to go find that goal. <laughs> you know, you really believe it's there. It's just so, it just was right, you know, somebody probably found it if they were looking. It's that palpable. So a lot of the practice is beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again, and practicing that, whether we know it or not, we're practicing that we talk or we chara, we're connecting, we're sustaining, and that sustaining could also be called intimacy or connect or commitment. <laughs> and it's like if you start to notice the beginning of the movement of the breath, it takes a certain commitment to be connected and intimate with that till the end of the breath. And usually when we attempt to do that with anything, one of the purposes of it, is, besides actually being with things as they are, is to start to see that when we actually sustain the attention through something, we tend to want to control it. And this is why it's hard to be in the present moment, because we don't want to see that. We actually don't want to see how much the controller appears. The controller is what you would call a me or an I. That's all a separate me is, is the controller. When the controller's gone, there's peace. There's no problem. But then be careful of, like, when we say something like this, the idea is that you start to get interested in the controller, not to get rid of it or want to change it. It's more you start getting interested in, if you're with a breath, that you start wanting it to be deeper or, like, longer. Or I mean, it's amazing. It's too tight. It's too hard. It's too soft. It's too, it's too vague. I want my breath clearer. Whatever it is, it's not okay the way it is, right? And that's, the breath is neutral. Just look at what we do with something like fear. So that fiddling, the fiddling with things, you know, that, that courage it takes to, like, sit there and day after day, sitting after sitting, walking after walking, being willing not to fiddle or to see the fiddling. 
that's part of the practice. So we commit to caring and understanding. We commit to being kind and understanding rather than to judge. And in that process, you see how much judgment there is. I had a job um, once with um, a boss uh, that when I um, taught my first three-month retreat, he showed up as a yogi. I didn't know he was going to be there. And he walked in, and I was like, whoa, okay, the tables are turned. (laughs) Good one. I never thought this was going to happen, you know. And he looked as shocked as I was. Um, And so he sat the three-month retreat uh, and he works in a very, kind of like a front, time, front lines um, mental health job, really difficult job. And I worked, I worked there for a year, so I knew what his job was like. Uh, and he went, he did some metta practice the last month of the retreat and went back out. Um, and I didn't know what had happened, but then, lo and behold, the next spring, his new wife, he had gotten married, his new wife came, and she wrote me a note and asked for an individual interview. And this retreat has like 100 people. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I'll try to see you. And um, so she came in, and she said, um, she knew I knew her husband. So she said, Michelle, you know, ever since he did this metta, you know, you know, sometimes he comes home from work, and it's so hard, and there's somebody at work he's having so much trouble with. And she said, this is what he does. He'll come in and he'll go in the bathroom and he'll slam the bathroom door and he'll say, may he be happy. And then he'll come out and he'll turn the light on and he'll say, may he be peaceful. And he'll like slam something else and he'll say, may he be liberated. And she said, is that meta? <laughs> is that what you're teaching? It was so funny. And I said, well, he's trying. You know, it's like, it's like a difficult situation. <laughs> And see, that's, that's what's so important, that no matter where we are, that we see that we can get pretty frazzled. And that those phrases sometimes are just like, it's a lifeline, even though there might be he's enraged, it's like he's trying to find his way to some peace. And that that's okay. We'll see in the course of a retreat how much we want our our good experiences back. It's like we can suffer over a good experience in meditation more than anything. It's like, say we had something happen two years ago or two hours ago. It's that wanting to repeat experience, even though we know it's not state-oriented, um, we're so vulnerable. And learning to be able to turn on that and, and just to be able to feel the wanting and know that wanting is totally okay but getting caught in the object of the wanting is totally um, imprisoned so shifting to experiencing the wanting we get liberated getting caught in it is being oppressed So this vitaka vichara 
and um, seeing our the nature of ourselves to want to control experience, there's a lot of um, disappointment that can happen through that. It's like when we actually stay connected with a human being over a long period of time, we go through that process and ourselves of seeing you know, where there is um, unpleasant aspects of any of us and learning that when we get close to somebody, we're going to want to change it and uh, we're up against this, this um, willingness just like we might be willing to be with tightness in our shoulder, we might be willing to be with somebody else's tightness in their minds, in their hearts, or their bodies. That that, that unconditional acceptance will again make for a genuine interest in that tightness rather than trying to um, push it away because we don't like it. When my um, when I decided to start feeding this uh, unbeknownst to me pregnant feral cat um, kitty, you know, I had no idea that I would end up with three, and I decided to have them fixed because I read a lot about it and I realized that I'd have 24 feral cats <laughs> within a year really that that's, that's how it works so um, but I had no idea that that we talk a we chara staying connected staying with that process I when I first started to read about it on the internet the first thing that came up was managing your feral cat colony it's like I didn't sign up for this. I was just trying to keep this cat alive. Managing your cat colony. Are you kidding me? I was just like this horror came into my mind. And then the next line was, and you will go through a lot of emotional turmoil. But it's worth it. And I was like, what are they talking about? And then after, you know, a few weeks with these beings, it's amazing. It's like, I, all I want to do is try to feed them. And I'll open the door. And they look at my legs as they start to move like they're weapons of mass destruction. Even after a year, it's like, I'll just like, if I don't move totally mindfully, really slowly, they're totally terrified and they'll disappear for hours. You know, and if I, if I sit outside and if I just go like one little unmindful movement on my hand, they're gone. It's, it's amazing. Just the, the, um, and then, on top of it all, they disappear for a couple days. You know, like one of them will disappear or they'll all disappear and it's like... And one day I was out there and I said, I yelled out, you're all disloyal. (laughs) You're disloyal. Here I am feeding you. And I have no control over these beings and I love it. Like I'm starting to see like, geez, it's amazing to see what a mirror it is. You know, this process of my own mindfulness, of my own, you know... Uh, expectation that they're going to have some predictable routine and that the particularly the daughters are going to start to get less afraid like I so want them to get less afraid and maybe they're not going to be and that, is that okay yeah that's genuine interest genuine connection 
it's taught me so much about post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like a wild, terrified, feral cat to help you learn about how to work with terror and fear. Just that gentle, gradual showing up and not, not expecting it to shift quickly. There's a um, word in Japanese for um, a begging bowl that means just enough. Um, And it it can be often very important for lay people to contemplate how the Buddha encouraged the monks and nuns to be, that he encouraged them to be totally, utterly, completely dependent on lay people every day. Uh, they're not allowed to store the food they beg for. They have a begging bowl. They go out every day, and they just receive what anybody puts in their bowl. So the relationship between the, the monastics and the lay people is totally um, reciprocal. It's like um, a monk or a nun won't survive a day without a lay person, basically. And the lay people are meant to receive the goodness of the renunciation and the stillness and the development of the the mind and heart and body that can't happen through you know as such a busy lay life. And you know it's like when there's there's still some something intact in certain places in Burma where you see that the a little girl or a little boy you know, will become, a, I call them monklets and nunlets, and they mm-hmm. go to school. And so, like, there's a way in which there isn't something so special about a monklet or a nunlet, you know, and, and you grow up with with these kids, each other. It's I don't think we can know what that would be like, but you'd be playing in the monasteries and nunneries, and you'd know the Sayadaw, you know, you'd know the kid that became the head uh, none, the abbess, or you'd know, you'd know, it's, it's very different, it's hard for us to fathom it, but we can get the metaphor. And that, that's what's so important, it's that, that just enough, the metaphor of the begging bowl, just enough, so you can relate to a day of your life, it can be less than a day, it could be one breath, one breath, is it just enough? Because it's, it's, it's this wanting more that gets us into so much trouble. And it, it's that if you actually <coughs> receive one breath, really receive it, it's going to be more than enough. And if you try to be with a thunderstorm, just be with the beginning, middle, end of a thunderstorm. It's going to be so filling. It's going to be, again, it's always almost more than enough. 
So it, it's like if you can take a day, or even at the end of a day when we're lying down, sometimes if I'm really busy, I just really try to receive what happened that day. If I wasn't able to be there for some of the aspects of it, it's like, oh, just try to receive it now. And again, there's, there's usually gratitude. Because if we take for granted shelter and food and, and even some remote degree of health, <laughs> you know, it, it's just so much. And it's, it's because we're not staying in touch with the begging bowl. You know, we're not staying in touch with receiving what we're given that day or what we're given that moment. to talk about a, a little bit might not totally fit into the theme but um, thought patterns so on a deep level and because we're doing the Brahma Viharas we haven't talked so much about investigating thought but it's very helpful in terms of as again we go in deeper when we start seeing that some thinking is just very generic and it's, it's really a relief to be able to relate to it generically. So just like burning, burning, or hearing, hearing right now, thinking, thinking, just that soft mental note once in a while. Uh, it's, and it's not meant to be that the soft mental note is like, you know, here comes the thought like a baseball, and you're just like going to wham that thought right out into, you know, home run land it's not that but it'll feel like that sometimes you know it's just like thinking wow and uh, sometimes the nuances and the finesse with thinking aren't there and sometimes we have to do that sometimes not saying not now just moving away from it not now moving away from it is really skillful or the soft mental note. It's not. It's not as strong a relationship. It's just thinking. Just move away from it. That's a lot of the practice. Is learning how to get that space. Not get caught. Not get caught. Not get caught in the content and the story. But to acknowledge, you're not trying to get rid of it. The ear hears. The nose smells. The, you know the tongue tastes. The body feels. The mind thinks, the heart center, the, the seat of consciousness, chitta. The um, thoughts are like sounds that are hitting the ear. Thoughts are hitting the, the, the heart center. So we're not, tr- it's like you wouldn't try to get rid of your ear to be liberated or your nose to be liberated. You're not trying to get rid of the mind to get liberated. But it, it takes a lot more practice and quiet to start to be able to see thoughts clearly because they're the most difficult to see clearly. They're so ephemeral. They're much more ephemeral than clouds. And and any time you want to take a look at them, you'll see that they usually disappear. They're moving so fast that it'll usually be a memory 
when you, you apprehend a thought. It's already gone. So that, that relief of not having to do anything with them, but just be aware that they're there, come to something more substantial, the metta, the, the other brahma-viharas, the body, the sounds, you know, anything that can hold your attention and give you space. And we've talked about kind of the layers of working with thought. That's the most simple when thoughts really repeat a lot, it can be helpful to go, oh, planning, and then move away. Or remembering, judging. And we've talked about already the hidden, sometimes the thoughts are really repeating. There, there is these deeper th- uh, thought patterns, and there's usually emotions that we're not aware of that are fueling these thought patterns. And these are the thought patterns we tend to not like that they're repeating. It's like, oh, what's this again? And it's like, it's so, it takes so much patience to not try to dig anything out, not dig any emotion out, but just the patience to make space with your whole body. Go, hmm, I wonder what this is. And then there are fantasies. And um, often, you know, if you think of the top hits of a radio station or the, you know, the, the best Emmys or the, you know, the Academy Awards, we have our, our top fantasies that we play out. And, and if you're really good at them, if you've practiced long enough, you can get a, the best relationship, the best job, and you can save the world all in like one fantasy you know you can just be sitting there and you're just like wondering wow what's this and it took a long time for me to be able to understand that whenever I noticed that there was a fantasy that I could send myself metta so it was almost like a cloud coming through and I would poke a hole in the cloud and send some metta through the cloud you know and, and it's like you're, you're, it, a fantasy is like you're taking a commercial um, and distancing. And it's helpful to just, if you can't pull out of it entirely, just pull out a bit, feel what's going on, notice if there's an emotion or not, sense a metta, you might get sucked back up. But that, that's just like when you're nodding and you come to. Something really different happens over time as you start bringing a gradual awareness into those deeper thought patterns. The kindness again. The kindness, the patience will start to help you have enough trust in yourself that the trust, that your system will trust you enough to show you something that you really don't necessarily want to see because it knows you're not going to clobber it. And don't worry, if you do collaborate, our defense system is so strong. <laughs> no worries, it's just going to go, okay, that's what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> you know, maybe next time, you know, you'll be a little kinder. You know, it just, it just takes a lot of patience and trust. So with some of these 
thought patterns and difficult emotions, it's really helpful to remember that mostly our system is wanting attending to. But we don't tend to attend to our system in a way that includes this not trying to get rid of and not trying to get. And so that's why it takes time for our petals to open. Because as we open, you know, if you go back to the old conditioning of judging and and trying to get rid of the, the, the filter of aversion and attachment, the system will just close up again. And that's fine. It'll just go, woo, <laughs> okay. Uh, and that in those moments where we fall back on that painful conditioning, there's no trust. And this is the same, just to remind us all again, it's the same with ourselves, with ourselves. It's the same with ourselves and another human. It's the same with ourselves. And a, and a chipmunk or a rabbit. It's the same process. There's a great saying from the Zen tradition. It's one of the Zen patriarchs, but I'm not sure which one it is. Um, He said the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences. Uh, This is a very deep teaching. So it's not saying that you get rid of your preferences. You're ceasing to cherish the preferences. Huge difference. So as we go through the course again, going through the Brahma Viharas, and we start to see our dislikes and likes more clearly, um, what's, what's being said is that we suffer so much when we cherish our preferences. So we're meant to see them. You know, that that desire for control, what I say to myself is, oh, of course, of course I want to control this. So you don't have to get in a big fight about it. Of course I'm afraid of that. Or of course, of course, that, of course, that you don't have to disagree with your system. You don't have to disagree with the information that your body, mind, heart is offering you. But you can learn to discern the information out of the kindness, out of the intention to understand rather than to judge. And out of that starts to be this extraordinary lack of oppression. first started teaching, I had a student that my first year that um, had so much restlessness. And I, I looked this up recently. He would he would walk from the, the place that we were sitting to this other town, and it was 13 miles one way and back. Um, 
and that's how hard the retreat was for him. But he, he managed, you know, there was still some sitting and walking there, but just this needing such space to be with the restlessness. And then a few late, years later, he came for another long retreat, and all this anger came up. Just incredible anger. Um, you know, and it was just like, he stopped needing to walk so far. But then he had to be with this, this layers of anger. Uh, and that, you know, it was just like, I don't, I'm not going to go through every three-month retreat he did, but it was so powerful to watch that there was a, there was kind of, it was kind of extreme, but really interesting to see that it started shifting and shifting and shifting. And there was one retreat he came in, probably almost every interview for three months, and he would just, he was so quiet. And he'd just sit down, and there was always this little tear that came down his face. And he'd just say, I'm so grateful. And it wasn't like, you know, there was a place where he was in this very content place, and then maybe did another one, and he said, what happened to the valley of contentment? (laughs) And I was like, well, if you're growing, it's going to change. You're going to hit deeper layers of stuff, and, and it's going to, you know, you're going to go through more stuff. So that's the only way you can get liberated. And he was like, oh, okay. And just kept going. So I like to give these examples because I like to really offer, if he could do that, any of us can do that. It's really a matter of just having that patience and putting in your time. And you start to trust, you start to trust the kindness and the care, the empathetic joy, the equanimity, the mindfulness. You start getting that when those are present, you're protected. So let's sit for a minute. May we be happy and peaceful of heart.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.